You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This podcast is probably the weirdest one I've ever done in terms of timing. Our guests and I have been trying to set up a time to do a podcast for a while, I would say about a year. And for one reason or another, it hasn't happened. And then today I said, hey, could you just do this right now? And so uh, from the High Speed Rail Alliance, uh, Rick Harnish is available here to chat with us. Rick, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Chuck. I'm glad we were able to make something work. I appreciate you being as flexible as you are. Can you first, I think it's maybe important because I'm I'm not going to have a chance to set this up. Tell people a little bit about yourself and about the High Speed Rail Alliance. What do you guys do? What do you what's your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? For me, I'm trying to accomplish many of the things that you're trying to accomplish. You know, I I live in the Midwest. I love the Midwest. And I get frustrated when I drive to big cities, small cities, all across the Midwest. And they've got these beautiful assets that are not being well used. And personally, I like to bike and walk and just find it frustrating that normally I can't. So that's my motivation. Our members, we're a a C3 nonprofit supported by our members. Our members have varying reasons that they state but really it sums down to either they've ridden the train overseas and they've seen what's happened to cities or not happened to cities because they have trains. Uh, they want that kind of community or it's they want the travel experience and we're helping them communicate with their state capitals in DC that it's time to make this truly a viable option. The, the reason that you and I are chatting is because I think, first of all, we agree on so much, particularly on the goals. I think where you have and where I want to end up here in this conversation is to talk a little bit about where maybe some of the tension that you've had with some of the things that 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 I've said or written or even Strong Towns as an organization has put forth. Not that we have raging disagreements with each other, but the nuance is important. Can we start with just transit as an overall concept before we get to high-speed rail? Because I think transit as an overall concept seems like it's the place where we have the easiest alignment. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So, But to clarify, I view airlines as public transit Sure. and high-speed rail as public transit. We certainly put a lot of money into public money into airlines. But absolutely, I love your analysis of why public transit doesn't work in this country and and how it's being sold. Absolutely. Well, you are reading, you got an advanced copy of Confessions of a Recovery Engineer. So I know you've been going through that. Can I summarize and then you can react? Does that sound fair? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, I put transit forth is two kind of concepts contrasted against each other. I'd say the way I describe the current system is that is it is a charitable overlay to a dysfunctional auto-based transportation system. And, and this is, I think, chapter eight or nine. So I've spent literally like 150 pages explaining why the auto-based system is dysfunctional. And so at, at, at the point in the book where you're reading in transit, you, you, you hopefully are very disgusted with the auto system. And I call the, the transit system a charitable overlay to that. And the reason I do that and describe it in that way is because if the underlying system doesn't work, the idea of having any type of overlay grafted onto it is kind of nonsensical. And when you treat it as, you know, it's a, it's a charity done for poor people or done for people who, who can't participate for whatever reason in the, in, the, in the, quote, regular system, it tends to also be second fiddle all the time. Let me maybe just stop there, because that's my description of the existing American approach to transit. Is that something that you generally would agree with? Where, where am I missing the boat? Or, Absolutely. Or- you know, I get, I get frustrated with transit as purely for journey to work, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so, you know, even here 
we've got pretty good trains in, in the metro system in Chicago, but it's totally focused on getting to people to the loop for a full business day. And because of that, it's incredibly expensive to operate compared to the value you're getting. Now, if you re and there's a number of routes where they could do it tomorrow if they chose to, instead have a schedule that works throughout the day and for people making trips to different places, it would be a very different system and be very additive. But because there's this huge focus on journey to work and more, it's either rich people with their briefcases getting downtown for work or it's poor people getting to warehouses that are not designed for transit in the first place. It's very frustrating. Yeah. When I say charitable overlay, yeah, that is, you know, I think you in inside the the business maybe have a different, <laughs> you have a different way of describing it, but it's basically, I think we're talking about the same thing. The idea that the principal goal of the transportation system is to bring far-flung commuters into a central business location to work and then return them at the end of the day. And whether that is in eight lanes of highway or, you know, some uh, rail project or some transit alternative, that seems like a dysfunctional way of building a city that kind of starts with a, a wrong idea of what transportation is. I don't know. Are we on, we're on, it feels like we're on the same page on that. Yeah. And I want to add, you know, please to, to that. When I moved to Chicago, downtown was dirty. It was kind of scary, but I went and bought myself a radio at a downtown store at an, an affordable boombox, right? Because it was the late 70s, early 80s. Now downtown is not like that anymore. It's either really expensive stores or office buildings because we've got this defunct, not only the transportation, but the land uses are dysfunctional. And it's something that's really got to change. Right. So tell me how high-speed rail fits into or, or, or doesn't fit into a vision for transit. Is there overlap? Am I thinking about this the wrong way? If I, because I don't think in my chapter on transit, I actually talked about high-speed rail. I think I talked about it in the, the chapter on fads, <laughs> which, which kind of shows you where, I, where I, I place it in the hierarchy of things. But can we make a connection between a transit system and a transit mentality and high-speed rail, or are they, should we think about them very differently? I think they should be thought of the same. Part of our problem is that a lot of the people who promote true high-speed rail don't value transit. So they're trying to replace um, air trips. And high-speed rail can do so much more than that. It's not just about one big city to another the way it's been sold for four decades. Um, it's really about entire regions when it's done correct. Can you talk about that? Because I, I will admit to being the person who, when I think about successful high-speed rail, I'm, I'm thinking about point-to-point over long distance. What am I missing? What, how would you describe it differently than that then? And to, to be clear, yeah, high-speed rail is done differently everywhere because everybody has different assets and different goals. So high-speed rail is very different in Turkey than it is in Morocco or in Saudi Arabia or in France, right? And none of those examples will translate exactly to the US. But the easiest to explain the concept is the French TGV. And I don't do good at pronouncing. It's okay. But I'm from Minnesota. I don't either. So if, if you translate TGV in the letters that it is, it's high-speed train, right? Sure. So the TGV or high-speed train in France on day one served about 10 cities, including the 500 miles from Paris to Marseille, but lots of other cities too, big and small, some in the Alps, Geneva, right? But the first high-speed line was only about 120 miles and it went from the outskirts of Lyon to about halfway to Paris. Now, the reason this doesn't quite translate is because their high-speed trains were able to run on their old network that won't be able to work here because we've got ridiculously big and heavy freight trains. 
that one piece impacted a broad, broad region. And because it was well-connected to transit, it made transit work better. It was the interstate highway that we built piece by piece by piece over four decades. Uh, that first piece was the first piece. It was the Pennsylvania toll road, for example. Um, California is an example that it's hard for people to grapple, but that piece in the middle of the line from San Francisco to LA is going to connect to about 10 or 15 bus routes that are already there. Some expanded train routes that are already in the works. And that will juice the entire system that will connect the entire state if all they build is that middle piece in the middle. But because it sold purely as San Francisco to LA, that story is not being told. And because the authority is different than all the other agencies that it will connect to. Let me ask you this, because I, I do think that this is where my, my vision and my understanding maybe does contrast. And so I, I'd like you to explain this because to me, there's a certain strode element that comes into play when you take a very high speed connection and then you slow it down with a bunch of minor connections along the way. And by, by strode, I, I don't mean to be all disparaging, but you know, this idea of, are you moving people great distance at speed or are you trying to build a place? I have seen a lot of transit systems and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to what I think is the worst one here in Minnesota, which is the North star commuter rail line, where in order to get the funding, what they needed to do was have a lot of partners. And so instead of running from St. Cloud to Minneapolis, which would be basically our biggest city and our maybe number four city or number five, somewhere in that range. So, the, you know, some of the two of the largest cities in Minnesota, instead of connecting them, it runs from Minneapolis up to a cornfield and it stops at a bunch of these regional partners uh, you know, the backs, the, the backside of a target is one stop, uh, you know, the, a bunch of like marginal places, but, but then they were able to get all these partners to contribute and it increased the amount of federal funding we could get. And so, yay, we won't do to St. Cloud where there would actually be ridership. We'll do to all these other places because that's how the funding works. It's been hard for me not to see something like California's high-speed rail in that same vein, you know, let, let's get all the partners involved. Let's make all these like marginal stops and uh, then we can get more money. What am I missing logistically about how the system should actually operate? And why are all these, what I would just call ancillary stops between the, the two major stops on the end, why are they important to the overall value that's being created in the system? So you've got two different examples there in the St. Cloud issue and the, the California issue. So with St. Cloud, we've done this over and over and over again um, in this country where we can't get the full project done. Mm -hmm. So there's a belief that if you get it started, we'll get it finished, which is the Robert Moses philosophy. Yeah. But Moses figured out how to create a big giant rolling machine that rolls over everybody. Right. Um, and so he would get it started and then say, well, you got to finish it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the North, I get confused. Between it's the, the North Star. Yeah. North Star. Yeah. They knew it wouldn't work if it didn't get all the way to St. Cloud, but they wanted to get the thing started. But because you lost the impetus then, because you got it started, it never got to St. Cloud. Right? Right. right. So there's a different issue there. And we've got examples like that all across the country. The Memphis streetcar system was never intended to be standalone and it doesn't work because it doesn't have all the feeders into it. Right. Standalone. It's kind of an awkward system. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, now the, the other issue we brought up is stops, right? So again, an extreme example is Tokyo to Osaka. It's roughly 300 miles, give or take. Um, they do that trip in two hours and 20 minutes which is slow by today's standards. But they have a train every five minutes, or at least they did pre-COVID, sometimes every three or four minutes. Wow. Um, and because the way the stations are designed, the express trains pass the locals in the station. 
So they've got trains that make like four stops and they run those every five to 10 minutes. And then they've got a train that makes every, all of the stops that they run once an hour. And because railroad infrastructure is so flex, so robust, you can do things like that if you design it properly. Now the California example is different because the stations they've got in the middle, there really aren't that many. Um, but they're kind of key places, Bakersfield, Fresno, Merced. They're, they're not small cities by Minnesota standards. No, right. They're not they're small cities by California, but not by Illinois. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but the stations are designed so that the expresses can go through the station without be interfering with anything else. And because you can run a train every five minutes, you can do a lot of different things. So uh, that's that's how you make it work. I use the example of the North Star because I remember distinctly how the funding required all those partners. Basically, if it had been a Minneapolis to St. Cloud, you got two partners and not as sexy a project as having 13. Is, is the funding driving that? To me, making the connection between the two and then adding the stops in later as there's enough impetus or enough what have you uh, is, is different than essentially building the stops first and then making the big connection at the end. Is it required that way because that builds the momentum to finish the whole line? Or is it because of the funding or what, what, what drives that phasing approach? Well, trains have the advantage of uh, they, they don't have the penalty for stopping the, the you know, buses running on the highway do because you get it off the highway with planes, right? right? So it's okay to have more stops and more stops actually trains can build volume. The key thing was not being able to get it all the way to St. Cloud. It wasn't the stops in between. Um, but, you know, in, in the book that, that you're, I'm reviewing right now, your book, um, you know, you talk about how there's these projections. Everybody assumes that there's always going to be growth on the highway side and there's always going to be money. So you plan for bigger, 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 bigger. Right. Right. On the transit side, they assume there is no ridership and that there's not going to be growth. And so you have to really fight really hard to demonstrate that there's even a market when you're doing your studies. Right. And so um, it's it's a really difficult thing to do. And then they end up not building it big enough to be successful at the beginning. I think maybe we agree on this, too. It, it does seem like a lot of the decisions on what to build, when to build, and, and how to build are 90 plus percent funding decisions and 10 percent like system design decisions. Is that a, is that a, because I feel that way for highways, definitely, right? Is that a fair, is that a fair assessment of major transit investments as well? Yeah, you might be too generous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of the things we've been arguing for is there needs to be a system plan. It doesn't have to be set in stone, but to understand how you're going to get a bus from Jacksonville, Illinois to Springfield, Illinois, which if you just look at Jacksonville to Springfield, it's difficult to do. But if you could look at Jacksonville to Springfield with a connection to a frequent train that takes you to Chicago, to O'Hare, to St. Louis and other places too, then all of a sudden maybe you can justify that bus. And then because that bus is there, you can justify a more robust um, network trunk, right? Which is the high-speed train or the Amtrak train or whatnot. So we have to take a systems approach to understand how to do this. Um, and that's one of the challenges. How do you balance that? Because, you know, we talked about Springfield or in your book, you talked about Springfield Mass right. and how they have this beautiful train station now and parking lots surrounding it. Yeah. Um, in Springfield, Illinois, they're building a station, I think, in the wrong location that's going to be surrounded by parking lots and, and parks. Right. right? But. So the, we've got local stuff that we have to fix, but it has to be in the context of a bigger plan. And that's that's a challenge. And there's a couple of big pieces that are going to be a really big leap of faith 
but the system's not going to work if it doesn't, if you don't make those big leaps of faith. So let me, let me, let me find common cause with um, your membership, because you, you said that a lot of your members have ridden trains overseas and had a really great experience doing it. Uh, I count myself among them, you know, that, that, that has been my experience too. And, and when you're riding the Eurostar, you're like, why in the world do we not have this in the U S like what, what is going on? I've, I've done the channel twice and it's mind blowing. The idea that you can get on a train in London and in a very reasonable period of time be in Paris is dreamy. I mean, it's a, it's amazing. And you just wonder why the wealthiest country in the world can't do this. Um, I also, you said that your, your members want this travel experience, you know, like they airports are airplanes are not fun. I fly a lot. Uh, airports are not fun. They're especially not fun now where you're masked up and, and uh, you know, you, the, the kind of glamor is all, all whatever remaining glamor is left is completely stripped out. Uh, I've taken the Amtrak from here in Brainerd, a neighboring city of Staples. You can get on to, to Chicago, a, a a handful of times and it is wonderful. I mean, it's a great way to travel. It's very enjoyable. A core part of the strong towns notion is that we should be working up to things incrementally. And in the book, I try to lay out the way a city would incrementally improve a transit system over time, essentially displacing vehicle trips with transit trips and making your city more walkable in the process and and thicker and more successful as a high-speed rail advocacy organization. Is there a conversation in your lexicon for incremental action and incremental action producing the results you want? Or is this one of those things where you either going to eat the whole thing or you're not? How should we be thinking about this in terms of the level of commitment up front that we have to buy into? Um, It's a mix of both. Uh, there's lots of small stuff that could be done that would make a huge difference. You need a lot of political commitment to get that done, uh, which we don't have. Like what, what uh, kind of small stuff? What are, you, what are you talking about? You know, the most frustrating thing is uh, I vacationed alongside the line where most of the Amtrak trains come from the east into Chicago. Yeah. And... Um, you know, being a rail fan and I combined one of the most beautiful places to go hiking in the Midwest with the best place to watch Amtrak trains in the Midwest. Yep. And just, <laughs> um, you know, if Amtrak and Norfolk Southern would cooperate and work together mm-hmm. to get those trains across that railroad at 80 miles an hour on time every day, that would make a huge difference. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I don't know why that doesn't happen. There's, I've, you know, I've done lots of reading, a lot of its relationships when it comes down to it. Um, some of its infrastructure issues. Um, so on that one side, you know, but on the other side, we got funding passed in Illinois in 2009 to expand service to Rockford and Quad Cities. And we've had a hard time getting the political force to get that over the hump, to just get the initial, like, at that time, we thought if we could just get two trains a day, we'll make the case and we can build from there, right? Mm -hmm. But it's taken so long to get through all of the issues that we really should have started with six or seven, because that's the point at which people really find it useful. Right. So on the one side, there's lots of little things like that. On the other side, though, We've got to figure out Chicago, and that's a biggie. So we've got to figure out how to separate passenger and freight between Chicago and Milwaukee. That's a $3 billion, $40 billion project at least. So there is this mix of small stuff and big stuff that we have to do. And that's part of the frustrating part of this business. Can we talk a little bit about that freight issue? Because I see this all the time. It, It comes up. Anytime you start to scratch the surface on rail, you run into these huge, you know, and I I will, from my standpoint, I'm sure there's a a technical term for this, but these contractual uh, obligations reciprocating back and forth on who basically gets access to the line at any particular period of time. 
let me describe it from my vantage point, And then you can tell me what I'm missing. It would almost be as if you took the highways and you said, everybody has to pull off to the side of the road and sit while the, the trucks, the large semi trucks go through. And then when they're not using the road, then you can, you get to go, you know, you, then you can drive to your work or to your shop or home or wherever you want to go. You kind of know when those trucks are, somebody's are going to come through, but not really. And you might wind up, you know, your commute might take half an hour. It might take four hours. Like nobody really knows, but they definitely get to go first and you have to go second. Am I describing in a layman's terms what these are like and, and how do we end up this way? So railroads are privately owned mm-hmm. and you would have to be nuts to try to compete with the interstate highway system as a private infrastructure. Right. And so they don't. Right. They have focused their business on things that don't work well on highways. And those are things that don't require a lot of precision. They don't require a lot of, of um, uh, customer service or infrastructure investment. And so they're eating the investments that were made a century ago. A more apt description would be if the tollway owner also owned the trucking company and <laughs> they were Yeah, keep going. I see where you're going with this. And they were getting a net profit of 60 bucks a mile from those trucks and only $5 or $6 a mile from the really fancy bus. Um, and so when they're making decisions about who goes first, okay, the law says the bus has to go first, but why would I do that? Because right. I got these other customers who are paying a lot more. So the, the core issue is highway contractors make a bucket load of money on building highways. Engineers make a bucket load of money on designing them. We got to figure out how to make it okay for the railroads to make money building infrastructure that it takes to run not only passenger trains, but fast freight trains so we can get trucks out there. Can you walk me through how that would happen? Because I I have some ideas. You study the way the railroads expanded initially, and it was a lot of building places and selling those places at a profit. Uh, how, How would you do this in today's system? So the, the best example we've got so far is Brightline, Florida. So you've got a joint owner of the freight railroad, the land around the railroad stations, and the passenger railroad. And so you've got a corporate overlord banging heads together and saying, you guys are going to play nice together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's missing in most of the network. The railroads gave up control of their land in many cases, so we've got a challenge there. And then they created a separate dispatch company that is 50% owned by the passenger operator and the freight operator. Um, And they built the infrastructure to a level where they could run the trains they wanna run. How we replicate that across the country is going to be the big challenge because you'd have to do something like a transit TIF. You'd have to figure out how to get all those parking lots around the stations into productive use. And you've got to be willing to have the railroad make a profit. And where they do that, it works. So Metro works, even though they've got two of their lines are incredibly busy freight lines. The trains run on time. Capital Corridor has found the solution. um, And they're paying around $60 a mile when you add everything up. But it comes down to changing that core relationship and saying, we're going to make the land work around the stations better. We're going to make the owner of the infrastructure whole. I'm sorry, that's not a simple answer. No, it's it's very good. Because I mean, my argument has always been like to make transit work, you have to build a place. Like it, like my response to transit advocates who say things, and I, I used to mock this. I don't mock it as much anymore, but there's a, there's a certain brand of transit advocates that say, you know, they want the experience. They said, just build a train. Like, I just want a train. I just want to ride on a train. And like, I get that, but if it doesn't make any sense, if it's not going to work, if it's not going to pay, you're going to be disappointed. 
And so my, my response to transit advocates has always been, you need to build a place, like work on building a place worthy of a transit connection. And then, you know, everything else becomes a lot easier. I don't know if you think that that is good advice or not. Is it a build a place kind of thing? Or are you saying that, you know, the transit's got to come first or you're saying it's all got to be simultaneous or like, how would you think about that from a strong towns approach? I think it was Edge Cities, Joel Gerard. Yeah, yeah. Right? Is that right? He pointed out the problem in his book. The problem is to get to a place that will support transit, you have to build the transit first. And I can't remember the numbers, but, but you know, in order to get to the point where people can use transit, you've got to have it there first because of the density you need to support the transit. Does that become a catch-22 then? I think so, yeah. But we could really start because we've got bus services in like Brainerd probably has a, a couple of bus routes, right? Um, um, well, we have local bus. We have like dial a ride. I mean, we have embarrassingly pathetic transit locally. But at least, you know, most towns in the Midwest have a good starter in terms of a walkable downtown and walkable. Yes. Downtown. Yes. Um, many places have at least some bus service. You are absolutely correct that doing the things about turning strodes into streets, mm-hmm. turning parking lots into productive uses, that really helps. San Jose's main light rail line is a great example where you've got these offices set in the sea of parking and this light rail line is, let's build some buildings where the parking lots are and I'll bet you suddenly both would work a lot better. Right. 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 Yeah. So it is a catch 22, but it's not an unworkable catch. twenty-two. It, it does seem like the impetus in a place like California, where they have lack of financial productivity in their development pattern. They have a need to build way more housing and they have all of the space near where they could potentially build transit stops all kind of magically come together in a way that they don't in say the Midwest, you could build 200 housing units near where our rail stop would come in here. And you're going to just like, there won't be that many housing units built in the next decade in this city, you know? So in the Midwest, I see this about preserving our existing wealth. Yeah. Again, one of the ways I, I keep motivated about this is I go to a town like Dwight. I recently went to Dwight and there's this beautiful stone building that must have been built, you know, between 1860 and 1900. That's really languishing, but it's walking distance from the train station. Right. And I just see these assets and go, we got to figure out how to use this stuff better now. Yeah. yeah. And stop burning up farmland on really ridiculous suburban sprawl. Yes. You know, to me, the, the challenge would be like, I agree with all those goals. And then you're like, what's the, what's the easiest way to do that? Or what's the quickest way or the best way? And I would put like large investments in transit down the list a little bit. Not that they're not important, but that it'd be something you would eventually work up to. Let me put this out there and see what you think about this. I think one of the advantages potentially for the automated vehicle you know, revolution or whatever we want to call this is the idea that major freight vehicles could go overnight. So you got a, a big truck with deliveries to Walmart, right? Don't judge me on the, the Walmart development model. I, I, I actually think that Walmarts are just going to become warehouses for people living in cities very soon. But some way things have got to get to Walmart or, you know, the grocery store has their delivery coming in. Instead of having that drive by a human in the middle of the day, clogging the interstates, all the things that go along with that, you just have that thing go automatically overnight. You just have it drive across country at night when there's nobody there. You know, we do this with sewer and water facilities where, you know, there's peak and there's off peak. And if you, as much of it as you can switch to off peak, you can keep your system running and you don't have to build new capacity. How much of the tension between freight and passenger rail could be resolved by shifting things to different times of the day? 
when there isn't the demand for humans? Or do we not even have to get that complicated? Is it is it is there an easier fix of just aligning incentives that that could do this easier? Part of the challenge is the railroads run these really long, long, long trains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not using their infrastructure as great as they could because they're they're trying to maximize the use of the labor, which I think is the, a bad approach. Ah, okay. Um, but yeah. their trains run 24 hours a day, right? So so the time of day isn't the issue. The, the real issue is they continue to shrink the size of their infrastructure, which means that the customers who demand a higher level of service get pushed onto the roads. Um, and so the real answer is to figure out how to build the infrastructure and it will be a lot less expensive than even maintaining some of the interstates so that they will haul more frequent, faster freight trains as well. And, you know, there's technology out there that has been, you know, Amtrak had freight trains running, freight cars running behind its trains for a short period of time at 90 miles an hour. So you could do that. Um, if there was a financial incentive to do so. It does feel like the legacy railroad companies, and no offense to Warren Buffett, I'm sure he doesn't listen, maybe he listens to this podcast. It does seem like the legacy train industry is, I'm struggling for the right word. In my years doing engineering work, you never wanted to have to deal with the railroad because they wouldn't answer your calls. They wouldn't answer your letters. They were not reachable. They would not budge on anything. They they had no like incentive the way other people who interacted with public rights away, uh, you know, a phone company, electric company, all these people were responsive. They actually had people set up to be responsive to you, the gas company. Um, you know, they might be old and bureaucratic and, and, and kind of pains in the neck, but they had established processes to like deal with things. If you ever had to touch a railroad, you automatically set your project back five years. Like it just was just like that was the way it was because they were not going to be responsive. They were going to be really difficult to deal with. Am I noticing something with the engineering construction that also translates into the broader operations of these places? Or is that isolated just to construction? That is something that I hear frequently. Okay. <laughs> You know, the, the railroads are very, 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 very short staffed. Mm-hmm. And so they don't staff up to the point that they could uh, respond to small communities very well. It's just, it, and again, it's one of the economic issues of the, the industry. They're, they're running on pretty thin margins. I'm convinced that the, without sounding too conspiracial, but yeah. the, the New York money men have figured out how to make money on eating up assets. And the last thing you wanna do when that's your business model is put any kind of risk in there or any kind of investment in there that, that um, doesn't have immediate payoff. So let me, let me rephrase that so, and make sure that I understand you. There's a lot of money to be made in just milking this, the tracks that are in place and patching them together and keeping them running and just the epitome of a monopoly utility, just running it over and over and over and and extracting as much wealth as you can. And there's a lot of risk and potentially not, you know, maybe some reward, but maybe not, but certainly more risk in actually thinking about doing something different with the railroads. Is that a fair way to summarize what you just said? And I think that that's legitimate Mm -hmm. because like in this infrastructure bill, which you've pointed out is nuts in a lot of ways. Yeah. How many hundreds of billions of dollars of funny money are we going to pump into the highway now? Right? We're going to keep doing it until we can't anymore. The whole thing's just going to blow up. Why would you want to compete with that? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It does seem, and, and I brought up Warren Buffett earlier, I feel like there's one truism about Warren Buffett's investment strategy over the last 15, 20 years. And that is that he uses his insider status to leverage investments that don't lose money. And when he bought the railroad, I'm like, okay, well that, you know, I can't remember what, what railroad was it that he bought? Do you remember? I don't, I don't remember off the top. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, to me, that was the signal that, 
this is the ultimate utility, right? Like I'm just buying something that's just going to print money over and over reliably and not something that, you know, is going to have a lot of risk to it. Buffett likes insurance companies, right? And there's a reason why, because you use actuarial science to get very predictable uh, investment returns. It's the opposite of like a tech company, right? Yeah. Um, he invests in banks that are about to be bailed, you know, that are bailed out and he gets preferred shares. So he makes sure he gets the very first asset out of that bank. That's something you and I can't do, but it's also something when we look at an investment strategy, it's one essentially guaranteed to make decent, you know, good money without having any risk. And, you know, I'm wondering if that is like the, if that is like the default risk profile for the railroad, but maybe the exact opposite of the one that we would want to have. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the BNSF has a couple of good high quality franchises. Mm -hmm. So uh, Chinese goods moving from LA to Chicago and from Seattle to Chicago, uh, the coal business and others. Um, so it's, it's a steady asset that, you know, if they can keep maintaining those existing trunk lines, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. But so given that reality, we have to figure out how to invest in, into some really key segments where it's really focused on passengers fast and figure out how to funnel a lot of different routes into that. So one of these I, I talk about, I talked about a couple of times already is Chicago to Milwaukee. So combine a new type of transit service, Chicago to Milwaukee, that's running on electrified trains, but you've got, in addition to that, Green Bay, you've got Madison up to St. Paul. At St. Paul, you're feeding in from Duluth, from St. Cloud, and from, you know, et cetera. And the, the key to making that all work is Chicago to Milwaukee. And that's where kind of this leap of faith has to happen if we're going to have good trains. How is Chicago to Milwaukee the key to that system? It's the funnel that everything comes into. Okay. So you're taking Green Bay is one of the tree branches, right? Um, and I forgot the network terms you used in your book, but you know, you've got these feeders coming into that trunk and that is the trunk of the tree. It does no good to get you Madison to Milwaukee if Everyone just sits there then trying to get to Chicago. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Okay. I get it. Can I ask you about Japan and China? Yeah. It, 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 it seems inevitably that whenever you start talking to someone who is a high speed, you know, rail advocate and, and, and not you, but like, you know, someone out there in the world who, you know, really wants this stuff and doesn't understand why the U S is so backward they always point to either Japan or China or Japan and China and say, these places have got it figured out. And the one thing that I see that is very different about both of those places is the way that they go about funding this type of infrastructure investment. And, and, and a lot of it is the relationship between the government, the private sector and the train operators. Can you talk about what, we can learn from their model? And can you talk about what maybe is not applicable from their model to, to, to where we're at today? Well, Japan and China are very different. Yeah. In terms of what happened. So in Japan in the 50s, early 50s, everybody knew that the railroads were going to go out of business. Once Japan got on its feet, everybody was going to buy a car, right? Right. Uh, it's a, a missing piece of history there. Uh, there was a big accident. Top management all quit in disgrace. And they had to hire a guy out of retirement because nobody who wanted a career in government would work for the railroad. And so he recognized that they had to build a new high-speed line. And he, Robert Moses, did, right? So even though it's Shinkansen means new main line, they lied and said they were upgrading the old line in order to get a, uh, a loan, right? Uh, he lied to the Politburo, or not the Politburo. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're equivalent of the, <laughs> right. The diet about how much it was going to cost, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the railroaders mocked him for it, the traditional railroaders. And then it was completely transformative, and they built it across the rest of the country. Uh, they went into great debt doing it, 
and then figured out how to leverage the real estate. The government ate some of the debt, and then they leveraged the real estate to keep the companies going from there. So they improved the value of the property, and then they leveraged that value improvement to make money off of it. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like we ate a lot of money to build the highways, but we pretended we didn't. Right. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> um, and so they were able to save their railroads because they did this, right? China is different. China, again, you know, if you go look at Beijing now, it's, you know, the horror show of the GM city of the future from the 30s. It's not a pleasant place, in my opinion. And again, what I was told by some Chinese, and I haven't been able to prove it, is that they didn't really like railroads there. I found some indication that the, the head of the railroad ministry lied and said he was not designing high-speed rail, even though he was. And then they had a big snowstorm in 2008 that shut down the highways and the airports during spring festival. And, you know, spring festival is Thanksgiving times 10. Okay. And that's a political no-no to not let people get home for spring festival. Right. And um, plus you had a need for a big construction program for stimulus. And the guy walked in and said, oh, by the way, I have this plan for high-speed rail and here's how you're going to get rich, you're going to get rich, you're going to get rich, and you're going to get rich. And that's not the public story, but that's what I've been able to piece together. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they're in a different place in terms of we might have been able to get away with that in the 50s, the way we did it with the interstates. We couldn't do that now. And then again, they destroyed entire neighborhoods, built a new railroad station, and then built new high rises around those railroad stations. Right. right. So China does not, I cannot find any real comparison for China to the U.S. In the Europe, there's lots of, in Turkey, et cetera. There's lots of things that we can take from Europe to bring here. China is very different. Last question. And this is almost like a true or false question. True or false. It's going to be really hard to get momentum on major transit infrastructure in the country as long as we continue to fund automobile travel the way we fund it. I I think that's very true. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. I feel like that is the most common cause that, that, that I have with, with every transit advocate is like, if we were able to get highway funding to be focused on maintenance, focused on uh, feedback loops and systems that actually responded to demand, quit these crazy projections and overbuilding and overengineering and, that, that it would naturally create uh, more demand for not transit investments just willy-nilly, but like good quality, high-returning transit investments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of this money that's in the infrastructure bill could be flexed to transit. Could it? I think so. Do you mean legally in the bill or do you mean like... You know, if we if we had a different mindset, it could be. I'm saying that I believe it can be. Yeah. And if we were to say we need to start flexing this, mm-hmm. use the money to get rid of the most dangerous things in the middles of downtown and start pushing for we need to flex this money towards towards transit. I think there's a lot of ways that you could do it if you were a creative bureaucrat and said, Oh, we could do this over here and we could yeah. do that. I think that that's true. I I've been I've been working through a column that I want to write, and I I think I'm going to send it to CNN actually, because I think they'll run it on on how we need to state legislators need to rein in their DOTs, and I feel like that would have to happen in order for that flex money to be spent the way you're talking about. Well, I have an example that just drives me nuts. Yeah, there's a place where. You know, unfortunately, the train doesn't work very well to New Orleans, and I've got a kid going to Tulane in New Orleans. So we've done that drive a couple of times, and we end up staying at this hotel where two interstates converge. And it's just one of these heinous intersections where you get off the highway, and there's the dilapidated 
gas station and then the new gas station and then the newer gas station. Yep. The same thing with the hotels. Yep. And during a campaign a couple of years ago to increase the gas tax, I stumbled into a meeting where the, the mayor of that town was selling the head of the transit committee in the Senate on, we need to tear down these woods so that we can build new hotels. And it's like, you got those shitty hotels over there. Right. Fix those. Right. But we need this road so we can do that. Right. Yeah. Yep. And we, that's the thing where you really got to do this from the bottom up. We got to get that mayor saying that's, blowing my community, I need to figure out how to get bust into downtown right? And, and get some of this activity happening downtown. That's where the bottom up really has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. Rick, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is, is really important? Any, any place, any, anything I'm missing or that, you know, strong towns listeners need to hear. I just want to emphasize the experience of you know, the flexibility of a good working train system where you can walk up to the ticket counter and likely have a ticket for a train within the next hour or two. Mm -hmm. And then when you get off the train, you're in a place where you can buy food, you can see people, you can walk around. That's really what I'm, I'm looking for in why, why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's a key part of making downtowns and communities in general very stronger. That's the part we need to focus on. Yeah. That is Rick Harnish. He is the executive director of the High Speed Rail Alliance. Rick, if people want to get a hold of you and follow your work and, and, and get plugged into the High Speed Rail Alliance, where would they best do that? Highspeedrail.us. Highspeedrail.us. That sounds very patriotic. It is. This is one of the ways that we <laughs> a freer, more productive society. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you for also uh, being on our book launch team, for being a member of Strong Towns, for, for communicating with me as often and as patiently as you do. I do really appreciate it. And I feel like I, I've learned a lot from you. So thanks so much. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.